Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. Alrighty guys, our sermon text is of course from Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 32 today. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, insomuch then as I am... I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I might magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing roots of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, <clears throat> for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to the nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. It's Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 32. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 
through 32. And again, the question that Paul has in mind here is what on earth is going on with Israel? Why is it that the gospel seems to be bearing more fruit among the Gentiles than it seems to be bearing among those who are the blood descendants of Abraham, the natural descendants of the nation of Israel? Why are they not responding with more vigor to the gospel. Because it seems like everyone in the world is running to Jesus except for Israel. And Paul wants to know why is this happening? What in the world is going on? The first couple of years that I was a church planter back in the 2012 to 2014 kind of general timeline, I noticed that whenever I would meet with a church planter, like a fellow church planter. It wasn't all of them, by the way, but there were a few times that when we would talk about how things were going with our church, if it happened to be a time when things were kind of rocky, instead of seeing compassion in their eyes, I would see their eyes kind of light up as though they were kind of smelling blood and there was an opportunity for them to kind of gather up the resources of our church and gather up the people who, you know, there was like this opportunity that they seemed to be sensing. And like I said, it wasn't a lot of church planters, but every once in a while that would happen. And it started to feel like whenever I would go to lunch with a church planter, I was kind of like a fish going to lunch with a shark. Are you with me? And I'm just kind of like trying to disguise the fact that I'm a fish. Like how things are going, oh, it's going great. How many people you guys have? Oh, several. You know, just with vague generality, just not to show any vulnerability because I didn't want them to start to have this sense that they're going to swoop in. And, and part of that was probably my own insecurity because we were just struggling along in those first couple of years. But the same kind of thought is occurring to Paul here. He's beginning to be concerned that these Gentiles are feeling a little bit puffed up as they watch the nation of Israel stumble. They're beginning to think of themselves more highly than they ought to. And they're beginning to, to congratulate themselves for their faith. They're beginning to congratulate themselves for their renewed standing within the people of God. They have this sudden invitation to be part of the family of the one true God. And they're beginning to look at themselves in the mirror to find the reason for that. And what Paul wants to say in this passage is we should not look with pride upon our new standing within the people of God. And we should not be dismissive and prideful toward the people of Israel as we see them failing to bear the fruit of faith in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to begin just by saying, look, don't count Israel out. Don't gloat over their demise. God is not finished with them yet. So the first thing he wants us to see is that Israel is not forgotten. Israel is not forgotten. Look at verses 11 through 15 here. I'm just going to read this very quickly. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is this, is this the kind of stumbling that leads to a full collapse? Is that what's going on here? No, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel 
jealous. In other words, look, God has a plan for Israel. And what's happening here is that Israel is walking within the plan of God. They're stumbling as it concerns faith in the gospel. But this is not so they can be destroyed. Rather, it's so that you can be saved. Rather, it's so that you can be brought in. There's this window of opportunity for the Gentiles, the nations, to be invited into the one family of God. And so Israel's stumble provides for a divine purpose. And he goes on, he says that their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, look, if Israel's failure to believe right now means that Gentiles are rushing into the kingdom, how much more powerful will it be when Israel does come to faith in the gospel? So God is doing this in order to provoke Israel to jealousy so that one day maybe they will place their faith in Jesus Christ. It says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul says, look, not only is the salvation of Israel part of God's agenda, but it's also part of my agenda as an apostle. The reason that I'm excited about my mission to you guys is not because of how much I love you, it's because of how much I love Israel, right? He says, at least in part, the reason that I'm running after this mission to the Gentiles is because of my love for my people. I want to see them come to faith. I'm heartbroken that they're not placing their faith in Jesus. I'm heartbroken that they're not seeing the light of the gospel. So it's part of God's plan. It's part of Paul's plan for Israel to come to faith. But then check this out. Here's what Paul now is going to explain his reasoning for if their rejection means reconciliation for the world what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead in other words if Israel's failure to believe has the power to unlock the kingdom for the Gentiles how much more will their faith unlock the kingdom for more people to rush in faith in Jesus Christ and so all of this is for the purpose of serving God's plan of salvation for all who believe now there's a history of interpretation history of translation thing going on here where whenever we are talking about this word Gentiles that's a translation decision so the word Gentile is always a translation decision and the decision is between two words. One is Gentiles, right? And the other is nations. And so either one of those is a valid translation of this word here, the Greek word ethnos. And this is important because I want you to think about this for a second. When you hear the word Gentiles, what you're hearing is the name for one group set in opposition to one other group called the Jews. So on this side you have the Gentiles and on this side you have the Jews and these are two equivalent groups that are set in opposition to each other. Just linguistically, that's what's going on, right? But when you translate it the nations, what you have now is one group, Israel, set in opposition to a host of groups 
each of which is equivalent to Israel. Do you see that? And so we have to be skillful in how we, in how we think about this word because there are many times in Romans when Gentiles seems to be the best translation. But in this case, I want us to really consider the possibility that nations might be better because what Paul is talking about here is the inclusion of everyone in the world who believes, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In other words, this is the fulfillment of what we see throughout the Old Testament, that God has a plan not just for Israel but for all the nations. And what we see playing out throughout biblical history is God's triumph over the nations. Think about this for a second. We see in Egypt, what happens? God rescues Israel from the hands of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. He triumphs over Pharaoh. He triumphs over the gods of Egypt and demonstrates that he's the one true God. The same thing happens with the Philistines. Think about it when the Philistines are able to apprehend the Ark of the Covenant in battle. This is the symbol of God's presence among Israel. And the Philistines and the Israelites go into battle. The Israelites foolishly drag the Ark into battle like a mascot at a football game. And God is displeased with their mishandling of the Ark. He's displeased with their pride. He's displeased with their disobedience. And instead of giving them the victory like they hoped the Ark would give them, instead... God sells himself into slavery to the Philistines. He allows the Philistines to win the battle and take the ark. They steal the very symbol of God's presence among Israel. But what happens? They place the ark in the temple of their false god, Dagon. And you guys know how this ends, right? The next morning, Dagon wakes up on his face and broken. And so what, what's the point there? The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is triumphing over the nations. Earlier in the text, when Israel is making their way to the promised land, what's happening? God is demonstrating his superiority over the gods of the nations. Israel is not winning these battles because Israel is mighty. They're winning these battles because God is mighty. And so there's this, there's this battle that God is continually winning, decisively winning, bringing all the nations into submission to his great glory. And then what we have is the continuation of that, the, the finalizing of that victory in and through Jesus Christ. When Jesus dies, he seems to be falling victim to the nations the most powerful nation on the earth, once again, has taken the people of God in the person of Jesus Christ into slavery right when he's arrested. And then Jesus is put to death. But then God raises him from the dead in triumph over all the, what, what is there to triumph over? All the powers and principalities, right? And Jesus triumphs in that way over all the gods of the nations. He shows himself to be the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords, the God over all gods. And so here, what I think is happening is Paul is saying, like, this, this is coming, it's breaking into our real lived experience. 
The Gentiles are coming to faith in Yahweh because their gods are defeated. They're coming to faith in the one true God because their gods have been laid waste. It's over for them. And they're rushing in, placing their faith in the one true God because Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And he says, but that's not for Israel's destruction. It's for their ultimate good, which again is for the ultimate good of the nations. So Israel is not forgotten. And now Paul wants to say, not only is Israel not forgotten, you need to know this, you're not superior. You are not superior to Israel. Give verses 16 through 24. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul's just using two different metaphors here to argue from the part to the whole, right? If, if the little bit of the dough is good, the whole thing is good. If the root of the tree is good, the whole tree is good. And then he continues, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although you're a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. In other words, the only reason that you now are being nourished by the gospel is because you're being grafted into the root that is Israel. The root that is the patriarchs. Yeah, many of the branches might have been cut off, but your entire life source is from this root. It's not your own, it's theirs. It's historic. Don't be, don't be arrogant toward these branches who have been cut off. And there's a little bit of a weird thing going on here because ta Paul talks about a wild olive tree being grafted onto a a natural or a um, propagated olive tree and you really that's not something that can happen you can't you can't actually graft a wild olive tree onto a cultivated olive tree but this it's important for us to get our heads around this because this actually demonstrates what we mean when we say that the bible is inerrant god works within the personalities of the biblical authors so he doesn't transform paul into an expert on botany Right, in order for him to write the inerrant, inspired, perfectly, perfectly executed word of God. Paul's understanding of botany is part of what is going to come to light here. And we're going to see Paul's personality shine through. So the Bible doesn't have to be right about its botanical metaphors in order for it to be absolutely 100% reliable, 100% um, 100% believable 100% true I think that's important for us to realize because a lot of times we'll see something like this and we'll start to think well is the Bible trust is the Bible can we believe it and this is actually evidence of exactly what we mean when we say that the Bible is authoritative when we say that the Bible is inspired when we say that the Bible is 100% without error is that it's God speaking through and in spite of these men so it's through them in the sense that their personalities shine through, their experiences shine through, their intelligence shines through. If the, the more educated authors of Scripture, you're going to notice that when you read how they write. And the less educated authors, you're going to notice that when you read what they write. You can see it in their grammar. You can see it in their vocabulary. And all of that 
comes together by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us this perfectly inspired Word of God. But Paul's trying to make the point here that you can only be as healthy as the root onto which you're grafted. So you can't be prideful about being part of this tree when you're also dismissing the root of the tree. That's the contradiction. And then he says in verses 20 through 21, what you should really feel is not pride, but you should feel fear when you look at this. And he kind of elaborates on what he means. Look, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that the way that Israel was cut off is through unbelief. The way that you are included is through faith. But if your faith becomes unbelief, you will suffer the same consequences as Israel. And this is functioning in the same way as all of the crazy passages we read in Hebrews. This is God using warnings in order to hold his people in the faith. That's how these warnings function. Paul is speaking the very words of God. He's encouraging God's people to take seriously the potential of falling away from the faith. And he's doing that in order to hold them in the faith. So be fearful, not prideful. The reality is, Paul concludes, you can be cut off and Israel can be grafted back in. And he elaborates in verse 24, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And then in verses 25 through 32, Paul's going to close his argument with this, that all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Now we have to decide what in the world does Paul mean by that? What does he mean when he says that all Israel will be saved? Well, the way that we understand this passage is going to impact the way that we understand the what what Bible scholars and theologians call eschatology in other words the end times right and the way we understand the end times is going to impact how we understand this passage it's just the way these things work and in the history of the United States the most popular viewpoint has been what you could refer to as premillennial dispensationalism Premillennial in the sense that Jesus is going to return before God establishes his 1,000-year kingdom on the earth. And dispensational means that there are different ways that God deals with people at different times throughout Scripture. So that's the most popular viewpoint. And the, that viewpoint, basically, when it comes to eschatology, here's, here's the basic idea. Everything is going to get worse and worse and worse. And then finally, Jesus is going to come back and set everything straight all in a moment, right? 
And if you hold to this, what you're probably going to do is when you see on the news that terrible things are happening, when you hear that fewer people are believing the gospel, you're going to feel affirmed in that. And you're going to be like, yeah, that's the world's going to, you know, where in a handbasket. You know, it's just going to be, I've been telling people the world's world just going to pot, whatever. You kind of feel like, it's almost, it's almost like you feel gleeful when things go wrong because it makes you feel a little bit right. And so that, that's kind of the disposition that premillennialism lends toward. And, but there are other options. So there's also something called amillennialism, which simply means that the entire time that Christians have been, ever since Jesus came into the world, that's the millennium, that's the reign of Jesus, and that is going to continue for a like a metaphorical 1,000 years at the end of which God will send Jesus back to establish his eternal rule visibly. So with that perspective, you can kind of like ride the wave and, you know, when things are going well, that's the advance of the gospel. When things are going poorly, well, that's the advance of the enemy and this is going to happen and there's going to be great travail and it's going to go back and forth and we just have to expect there's going to be chaos. But Jesus is going to come back, that's what I know, and everything is going to be and then the third option that is held from time to time is called postmillennialism. And this is an optimistic view that the gospel is going to make more and more progress, that more and more people are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and that's eventually going to lead at the end of all things to a great revival, which will usher in the return of Jesus Christ to establish his reign visibly on the earth. And all of these are more popular, less popular at different times in history. And I'm not going to tell you which one you need to run towards. But what I want to do is look at this passage knowing that it's going to have an impact on how we see these things. Does, does that make sense? I will tell you that I think the least plausible is the premillennial view. I, I, I think biblically it's the least plausible. But I think there's a lot of room for amillennial or post-millennial views, just to be honest with you as your pastor. So all Israel will be saved. Let's figure out what Paul means by that. So in verse 25, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Paul actually tells us two things here. Number one, the hardening of Israel is partial. And we know that because guess what? There are some Jews who are believing, right? Paul himself is one of those. The apostles are each an example of that. And so there are some people in Israel who are believing. So it's partial. But also it's temporary. What does he say? Until the Gentiles come in. Until the full number of the Gentiles come in. So what Paul's implying here is that at some point, the fullness of the Gentiles will have come in. And at that point, this partial temporary hardening of Israel will be lifted. Well, why are they hardened? How, why is that the case? Well, let's see. It says, and, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. In what way? Well, the nearest reference seems to be the coming in of the Gentiles. So all the Gentiles rushing in at the end or at this one great moment, whenever this happens to be, is going to be the mechanism that causes Israel to be saved, all Israel to be saved. 
Now, we have to deal with this word all. What it doesn't say, you guys are familiar with the difference between all and every, right? Paul says all Israel will be saved. He doesn't say every Israelite will be saved. All Israel will be saved, not every Israelite will be saved. So he's talking about a collective responding in great numbers such that you could characterize the whole as having been saved. So all Israel will be saved. And here's how he continues. For as regards, well, then he, he quotes his Old Testament passage, which he's now, he's now going to rehistoricize as speaking to the current situation that Paul has in mind, the eventual coming in of tons of Gentiles so that Israel is saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, Paul is saying this is not yet fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled at the end when Jesus comes and this thing happens where all Israel is saved, right? And he says, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So as regards the gospel, Israel is not believing the gospel. They're enemies to the gospel. They're fighting against the gospel. They're denying the gospel. They're running away from Jesus, not towards him. So they're enemies as the gospel is concerned. But as concerns election, they're beloved for the sake of the forefathers. In other words, because of God's promise to their forefathers, there's still something about Israel there's still something in Israel that has to do with election. In other words, God's choice to bring them to salvation. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you at one time were disobedient, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all so what appears to be happening just to summarize what Paul's argument seems to be is that there's going to be a time when the Gentiles the nations are going to rush to faith in Jesus Christ in such numbers that it's going to overwhelm even the unbelief of the people of Israel such that they too place their faith in Jesus Christ in such numbers that it could be characterized as all Israel coming to faith in the gospel. So there's going to be a time, check this out, when so many people are going to believe that it's going to change the outlook of this nation that has historically rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody ought to be shouting at this point, right? When, when is it going to be, Lord? When's it going to be? I mean, even with this, even with this text, we run around acting like we, we're the only Christians in the world, don't we? We run around acting like there's no chance anybody's ever going to believe the gospel. Listen, next, next Sunday, we're going to have the opportunity to witness the baptism of a young lady who's placed her faith in Jesus because someone in our church didn't think that way. 
because someone in our church decided that the gospel has the power to bring about salvation. Because someone in our church decided that the gospel has the power to transform hearts, even hearts that have been darkened by false religions. Right? And this is, this is a beautiful thing that it coincides with this passage because you know, a lot of times, every once in a while, someone will say, well, Cole, what's our what's our mission strategy? Right? And every time someone asks me that, I, usually I'll... I'll I'll fumble, I won't be as clear as I need to be, but what I'm thinking is, well, you're our mission strategy. You are our mission strategy. In other words, it's, it's your faithfulness to love and serve your neighbors with a view toward, with a view toward having the opportunity at some point to share with them not only your home, not only your life, but by God's grace, perhaps the gospel. And we don't do that with any kind of agenda. Please don't do it with an agenda. We can love people because we love people. But God's usual way is that in doing that, he'll unfold the opportunity at some point for you to unfold the gospel. And so we're faithful, we're humble, we're loving, we're neighborly, and we're eager for God to show us the opportunity to share our faith. Why is that? Well, it's because it's the faith that saved us. It's the faith that's allowed us to be rescued from anxiety in the midst of dark moments. It's the faith that holds us up when we would otherwise give way to depression. It's the faith that holds us together as a church family. It's the faith that unites us as a people. It's the faith that gives us great confidence as we think toward the future and as we as we get older and we recognize that we're not going to be here for our kids forever, right? It's the faith that gives us the confidence to endure the daily difficulties of life with joy and hope. It's the faith that makes meaning of our lives. So, of course, we're eager to share it whenever we have the opportunity to do that. We don't throw it at people. We don't lob it at people. We don't push it on people we don't shove it in people's faces but we're willing and ready to share the gospel at the first possible moment why is that because we believe at some point so many people are going to rush to faith in Jesus Christ that it's going to overwhelm even the unbelief of the people of Israel who've rejected the gospel for 2,000 years now you believe that I believe it so here's the question, are you, number one, are you humble in your election? Do you recognize that your election is not because of you? In fact, it's defined by your faith in Christ, which means your election is defined by the very recognition that it's not about you, right? So as soon as that slips in, you ought to start getting worried, and you guys remember what I've told you. When, when you come to judgment and you're standing before God and you're giving account for your life, do not start talking about yourself. Don't do it. He might talk about you, right? And you just change the subject to Jesus, right? Lord, I, yes, but Jesus. Yes, but Jesus. I'm here trusting in Jesus. 
That's your plea. And even if, even if you haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ yet, look, the Scripture says that we're all going to live once, then death, then the judgment. So as far as I can understand, that means that once we die, that's it. But just on the off chance that God starts talking to you about you and, hey, you start talking about Jesus, you know. Take the opportunity. Talk about, remember that, right. Talk about Jesus, not about yourself, because your faith, your election, your salvation is not the result of anything you've done. Your faith, your election, your salvation is the result of the righteousness and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. Trust that. Proclaim that. Appeal to that before God. So are you humble in your election? Number two, are you optimistic in your outlook? Are you optimistic in your outlook? And I don't mean optimistic in the sense that you're running around denying reality. I don't mean optimistic in the sense that you're blind to chaos that's swirling around us. I mean optimistic in the sense that there's never been a moment when the gospel lacks the power to bring about real progress here on earth. There is no challenge that can stand up against the gospel. So at any moment, God could, God could unleash this thing so that people are rushing in to faith in the gospel. So we should be optimistic in the sense that we know that by God's grace, he might lend his help to the preaching of the gospel at any moment to bring about great renewal, great faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, are you confident in your evangelism? Are you confident in your evangelism? Because this is the command of God. We, we're, we're commanded to be those who share the gospel throughout the nations. That means first, your first neighbors are the people in your family, the people in your home. Your second neighbors are the people who live and work and socialize in the same circles that you live and work and socialize. And then your third neighbors are the people throughout the world. And so God expects us to be faithful in all those realms so that we would share the gospel faithfully. And he also wants us to be strategic. We don't walk up to people the first time we meet them and plop a tract in their hand, right? We don't, we don't look for arguments. We don't look for debates. We're not trying to, like, spar our way into evangelistic fruitfulness. But we're eager for God-given, God-orchestrated opportunities to share the gospel gently, humbly, faithfully, accurately, winsomely, right? And we want to do that with confidence. And because we know, we know what Paul said here. At some point, it's going to break loose. At some point, it's going to happen. And so we should be ruthlessly suspicious that God is going to use us to bring about the outpouring of the gospel that results in the inpouring of the nations. Ruthlessly suspicious. You never know but that God is going to use you and the words that you speak to your neighbor to be the first, the first little crack in the wall that unleashes a mighty outpouring of 
the waters of the Spirit. So be humble, be optimistic, be confident, and let all of that drive you to a life of faithfulness where you are loving your neighbors with sincerity and eagerness for their salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the passion that you put in the heart of Paul and the clarity that you put in his mind that he could write these words for our benefit some 2,000 years later. God, I pray that we would be formed by these words, that we would be anchored in this word, and that we would be propelled by it to be faithful emissaries of your kingdom, faithful to proclaim your gospel whenever we're given the opportunity. Help us to love our neighbors with sincerity, without an agenda, and with eagerness that in some way, by some means, they may come to know you and your grace might saturate their lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.